0: The four idipadas, quite often translated as four basis of power, four roads to power, four roads to success, um, four manifestations. Idi is the Pali for more or less powers, and these are, would be psychic powers. And pada is path. So, path to psychic mastery or something like that. And I've never given a talk on this. This is uh, quite fascinating, though. I think, well, monks probably talk about it, especially in uh, the Thai forest tradition, where there's a living tradition of deep practice and the side effects of psychic special psychic capacities and kind of unusual supernormal events and so forth are you know part of the standard conversation part of the ethos there certainly if you read the suttas in the time of the buddha this uh this whole ethos of supernormal, what we would call in the west miraculous kind of experiences and so forth are going on but so that buddhism doesn't attribute them to they're not miracles they're not suspensions of anything they're just part of the they're part of some lawful structure of psychology and physics there's some way that these laws intersect and there it's lawful there's no suspension of law so the idea in the west is that you know some god is suspending the laws of physics temporarily or something like this but from a buddhist point of view you don't have any intermediate nobody is intervening and if you if you understand how these things work then One can gain uh, competence or even mastery in those areas. But it's interesting to look at how they propose that you learn this. And in earlier cultures than Buddhism, so the Buddha is, uh, the dates of the Buddha, like contemporary, I would say Western scholarship has kind of arrived at 480 BC to 400 BC. This is a new adjustment. It used to be 563 to 483. And then in Sri Lanka, it's even older. It's back into the 600s. So anyway, before the time of the Buddha, before the 5th century BC, there's a preceding kind of cultures that are... They note these kind of unusual events but they attribute it to supernatural beings or how to access them as rites and rituals so mandalas and special spells and so forth these um, mantras like magical spells in the Vedic tradition you'll see this kind of stuff again in uh, Greek society and uh, the Jewish society. There's supernormal kind of events happening, but they're not usually all that sort of contr- under control or understood at you know how to approach them. So the uh, four idipadas, the four roads to these supernormal capacities, are quite understandable, and they're kind of like how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Anybody know the answer? How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Yes. Practice, yes. You don't need a, it's not a street map. You need to practice to get to Carnegie Hall. And you have to practice a lot. And you have to practice the right way, not the wrong way. And you have to be very zealous as well, because it's going to take everything you have. So zeal, in fact, is the first of the four roads to success in super normal or this kind of uh, special kind of mental activities. Uh, So chanda is the word for this. And one of the translations is zeal, but it could be just strong interest, very, very strong interest. You really have to be interested in this. And people are, you know, look what they can do. They can do fantastic. Almost, well, you, ordinary people can't do what some people can. And this has to do something with talent as well. It's beyond the, the, the capacities of normal people. And, of course, in the intellectual areas, you know, an Einstein or a Newton, uh, there's all kinds of geniuses that ordinary people, well, even bright people, even when you work hard at it, you can't do it it's it's beyond understanding almost how they do it but there is there it's not like einstein didn't say oh well just god sent me relativity that's all i was sitting around one day and he just whispered in my ear but he did describe his process i mean he he said actually the process how i got my ideas is not a lot of computation or anything like that. It was mostly playing the violin and meditation, or what he would call meditation, like being quiet in his room, just a lot of time going by in quiet and silence. He wouldn't let anybody speak to him during the day, including his wife. And that was a bit of a problem. So somehow he's opening and finding ways to to allow intuition to come into this as well. So he's describing these processes. But he's obviously extremely interested as well. And this is this chanda, I want to say, by the way, one of the definitions of the Itipadas is that it's, the Buddha gives it in a sutta, he says, this is the way from this shore to the farther shore. So the development of these Itipadas is not just for the purposes of these, of special psychic capacities, but it's actually to attain enlightenment. And so you'll see how it's interwoven, these four are interwoven into the 37 factors of awakening as well so chanda is necessary a strong drive and interest and aspiration and zealous motivations and but you're not just uh, aspiring to psychic capacities special psychic capacities you're you're it's in the service of this process to the far shore. The far shore is always a simile for Nibbāna. So this, this shore is samsara uh, where it floods, you know, the flood come over this. Why, why do you want to go to the other shore? This, the raft to the other shore, the raft is the, is the teachings and the person needs the raft to get to the other shore. In those days didn't, people didn't swim much, (laughs) so they need a raft. So the raft is, is actually, Um, not the Tom Sawyer kind of raft, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn going down the the Mississippi. It's uh, a bundle of sticks is what it is, lashed together with some vines. And what those are is a bundle of teachings, just a small bundle of teachings, because remember, it's very hard to get access to the Pali canon that wasn't written down or anything like that. So all you could get was snatches of it, a few suttas, A few sort of central things, a little exposure to the five faculties or the eightfold path, and you bound, you strap those together, and you headed for the far shore. As long as as you didn't drown on the way, you had enough teachings to get you across. And by the way, that simile—I don't want to get too far off my topic—but that simile is: uh, how does the man? He can't. He doesn't just float. He's got to actually go to the other shore. So how does he do that? He uses both hands and both feet. And what are both hands and both feet? The both hands are the prevention and removal. So it's right effort, four right efforts are how the the man and the bundle of teachings that he's collected gets across the river. He paddles with both hands, prevention and removal of the five hindrances, and both feet, which is the creation of the seven factors of enlightenment and the sustaining and development of those. Those are the, 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 the kicking. And so he needs all four of the limbs to get across. And so this right effort, is very, very critical to the process. But he's got to be very zealous to enter the river to begin with. Most people, as the Buddha says, I think it's in the Dhammapada, most people run up and down this shore. They just run up and down this shore. They don't think, it's, you know, it's gonna flood one of these days, I've got to get across there. It's like Florida. Um, or whatever half the world actually is it's a beautiful simile for this time the sea level rise and <laughs> where are you going to go I know we're at 1100 meters so we're safe <laughs> yes yeah, so this this is critical and of course if you want to do a PhD as well you've got to have a lot of zeal if you want to play concert violin you've got to have a lot of zeal if you want to be make the the NFL you got to have a lot of zeal and a little bit of stupidity as well so <laughs> you're going to learn, lose some brain cells there so make sure this doesn't get out on the internet <laughs> uh, yeah so the means is not mystical it's it's what you bring. So these four idipadas, the paths to the mystical, the the super normal, the str- the strange, um, is conventional. It's what is required to succeed in high at high level for anything. You need strong zeal. And the next one is not surprising. It's. Phyriya, our old friend, energy and effort. So you have to make effort, and that would be the man kicking and and paddling. The efforts involve all of the things I've been talking about, the nine um, forms of effort that are laced through the 37 requisites, Effort and energy occur nine times, the most of all of the factors. It is the highest, has the highest score. You see the kind of efforts the Buddha made. When he was a bodhisattva, his efforts were extraordinary. He came to the edge of death. Unfortunately, he was going in the wrong direction. And that might be a little lesson in this zeal. There is a nice saying, and I don't know where I heard it, but it struck me. Zeal without wisdom is like running in the dark. You know, you you just run right into a tree. <laughs> so this is why, you know, watch, read your Boy Scout manual. When you get lost in the forest at night, don't run. <laughs> Sit down and calm down. So zeal has to be well directed. The bodhisattva was extraordinarily zealous, but he was misdirected. And this is, you can see, just review your own life. And everybody in this room is zealous, actually. You wouldn't be here if you weren't. (laughs) Uh, So you've made all kinds of efforts and stuff in your life, and some of them have been misdirected. You can look back on them and think, yeah, right. Put a lot of work into that, and it turned out, Mm, that was the wrong direction, <laughs> but you were gung ho on it. So, zeal has to have other conditions attached to it, and we will get to those. But you can't just be zealous; you need to make effort, and the effort must be skillful. And the efforts here is clear that it's you're not just praying for something to happen. It's not magical thinking involving rites and rituals, but it's it's the kind of efforts where you're investigating your own mental processes, eliminating things that you probably identify with. You know, your temper or your desires and so forth. those That's, in a sense, your... Your sense of self has to be come under scrutiny and that's what the challenge of meditation and right effort is that you have to remove stuff that is your way of walking through life. The strategies that you probably learned as a kid or learned by imitating your parents or something may not be skillful and you have to actually undo them. And that's why most people don't meditate. <laughs> Or try this, because it, it's a more or less a threat to your conventional understanding of who you are, because you're not going to be that person anymore. You're not going to fly off the handle. You're not going to use anger to get your way. All kinds of things. Are, you're not going to just crash out for a couple of days and indulge in, in sloth and so forth. You're, these are all being challenged. So this is like a redoing of the entire sense of self. And you can't be complacent either, because the new, positive, different ways of doing things have to be brought into existence. It just takes inquiry and searching around and getting information and hearing teachings, reading the teachings, researching, thinking about it, turning it over. And this takes effort. But because you're zealous, you're willing to do it. The next one is just citta. It's vague, rather vague. Citta just means the mind, the mind processes. And But the Buddha is saying this isn't done by walking in circles or sacrificing a lamb or something like that. It's not done that way. It's done with your mind. You have to cultivate, develop, and refine your mental processes. And that's how it happens. It's your mind is how it happens. It's how you think, how you remember, how you predict. All of the the functions of the mind, in fact, self-inquiry into how it works. By the way, so chitta comes up again in the four... Foundations of mindfulness. is the third category. We haven't talked about the four foundations of mindfulness. Of course, you've all heard all about it before, but not in this retreat. We haven't got to that that set of four. But anyway, the third of the four foundations of mindfulness is chitta nupasana, chitta. And this is the third of the four idipada. Chitta. And that's all it says, chitta. Chitta is Given in uh, Four Foundations of Mindfulness is one of the simplest of the, of the uh, foundations. It's, do you know, when you look at your mind, are you angry or not? Greedy or not? Delusional or not? Expansive or contracted? Surpassable or unsurpassable? Surpassable and unsurpassable means... Are you at the highest state that you have been? Is your mind as lucid and clear as you are capable of now? It doesn't mean that you're enlightened. It means that in your evaluation, is this as lucid and uh, focused and clear as you've been and as far as you can go? Uh, of course, you will you have to know that lots of people you know have they have no idea of how to assess themselves in these meditation They come to me and tell me that they had this great meditation and everything and I I really don't think they did but they somehow they They can't evaluate there's so much going on in the mind that they, they haven't even begun to Understand what's going on because what I'm seeing is this as they're claiming to have a good meditation that that's just, they don't know what a good meditation is, and so when they report it back, so it's like going, you're, un, you're not musical or untrained and so forth, you go to a concert, wow, that was so great. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it was pretty bad, so out of tune, <laughs> it was so bad. <laughs> but the person has no way of knowing if you... Um, the, to know the mind is like compared to what? Because that's the problem. You can't know anybody else's mind. You can't. You can only know. You can only see your own mind, and you guess about everybody else's. So when you're, it's been with you. So you don't know compared to that person. And this is sort of what you learn in school. It's like you write out your answers and everything, and then you get back your test, and you get a C and Johnny gets a B. And so his, he apparently, you're not so good at it as Johnny, you know? And how would you know before that, you know? How would you know, even like, are you smart? How would you know? Com- Cause smart is not a, an absolute thing. It's just a relative thing. Smart compared to what? To, to your dog? Yeah, you're pretty smart. Very smart. Right off the canine IQ scale, right? You're, gen- you're a genius compared to a dog. You're a genius, but compared to other people, etc. So these are all comparisons and and lack of like self understanding. So chitta is a lot to do with that, evaluating and understanding yourself. By the way, the Buddha has an interesting... Somebody came to the Buddha and asked about what it is to be good and, and, and bad and so forth. What's a, who's a good person, what a, who's a bad person. So he said, can a... The man asked the Buddha, can a good person know if another person is good? Can a good person know if another person is bad? Can a bad person know if another person is good? Can a bad person know if another person is bad? And you can think about that for a second before I tell you the answer from the Buddha. Think. Yeah? Okay. Uh, Here's the answer. So the Buddha says, it is impossible, it cannot be, that a bad person can know if another person is good. It is impossible, cannot be, if a bad person can know if another person is bad. It is possible and likely that a good person can know if another person is good. It is possible and likely that a good person can know if another person is bad. And you think, how can that be? Let's let's change it to, A tone-deaf person, can a tone-deaf person know if another person is tone-deaf? No, because they're tone-deaf. Can a tone-deaf person know if another person is good, you know, sang well? No. Can a person who has good pitch and can sing, can they know if another person is a bad singer? Yes, likely. Can they know if another person is a good singer? Likely. But if you don't have the capacity in yourself, if you're tone deaf, if you're moral deaf, you know, then you have no sense of, of your own uh, condition and you don't have a sense of anybody else's either because you're lacking in that. So part of the training process is to evaluate yourself. Well, how would you even start? The Buddha is a great teacher. He's not interested in impressing you or being obscure or anything. He gives you these like rudimentary exercises. Here's your five precepts. Can you stay within the bounds of that? A good person can stay in the bounds of the five precepts. And if you can't, if you keep going over them, you have to question, why do you keep going over them? It's telling you something about the workings of your mind. So why can't you sing that, why can't you sing on pitch? Why can't you play the violin on pitch? You need to listen more carefully. What, what is the right pitch? Uh, what, are you too in haste? Are you, are you doing it too fast? Have you not listened to it enough or, you know, um, et etc. So you have to inquire. So that usually what drives people over the boundaries of the precepts is greed, hatred, delusion. You know, a person can't remember anything or they're confused and, you know, or intoxicated and so forth over the boundaries. They're strongly greedy, so they'll step over certain boundaries. They're infatuated by fame or they'll, that's a form of greed for personal recognition. They'll step over these boundaries. So you start to see, well, if I can't stay inside, I guess I'm not, I don't understand and then you then the next process is well how, how what is it that keeps pushing me over these boundaries I have to that tells me a lot about the mind I can learn to learn about my mind by by my behavior and how do I speak as well speech in action can tell me something about my motivations my mind and I can learn about that so that is In my estimate, what the Buddha is talking about with this citta, the thing about the four idipadas is really vague and obscure. There's hardly any real detailed writings about it. You can look throughout the Pali Canon, and it's like the Eightfold Path, the Seven Factors, uh, Five uh, Faculties, Five Powers, all of the other 37 are very, quite well-articulated all kinds of details and so forth. These are the, the least articulated, most obscure. And that's kind of one, one of the reasons why I haven't given any talks about it. But at the same time, there's a lot of, um, a lot of descriptions about the effects of these, of these idipadas in terms of these unusual powers that are said to have been gained by, mostly by monks. Uh, certainly the Buddha himself, and many of the leading disciples displayed these capacities. But before I talk about those, I want to just get to the fourth of the Itipadas. It's called Vimamsa. Vimamsa. And it is basically similar to the other factors which are around wisdom. So in the seven factors, seven, uh, Bojangas, The Seven Factors of Enlightenment, we have Dhamma-vichaya, investigation of Dhamma, of truth, the uh, Dhammic truth. And we have Panya, so in the five faculties, and the five powers, the fifth one is Panya, wisdom. So Vimamsa is correlated with Panya, wisdom, and investigation. And uh, in the Eightfold Path, right view, there's also a form of intelligence, wisdom, and the point of the exercise, which everything else supports the development of right view. And anything else, any other, there's five uh, that are all related in terms of wisdom. I think I got them, yeah, I got them all, yeah. So right view, Dhamma-Vichaya, so in the Eightfold Path, right view, seven factors, Dhamma-Vichaya, Panya in five faculties, Panya in five powers, and then Vimamsa in uh, the four Edipadas. So this is an intelligent inquiry into the workings of the mind. And this is like, for instance, in modern times, Unless you're, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of people actually interested in this. Is, you have this huge kind of cultural, religious cultural background where people are claimed to display all kinds of knowledges and stuff that seem that don't fit in sort of a modern rationalistic uh, ideas. But there's a huge history and all kinds of traditions of this. So some people are keep that up and then excessive rationalism and and skepticism, technological preferences and so forth often say well that didn't happen they just were mistake you know they were either mistaken or just had they were trying to put one over on people or you know something like this but so what happens is if you're raised in a system like that you won't actually inquire into this and you won't actually consistently even try to do any of this because you, right off the bat, you presume it can't happen, so you'd be wasting your time. I mean, even in the time of the Buddha, there would be all kinds of people that presume such things are impossible to do. Nobody can do that. But, you know, as I say, there's remarkable capacities of people. You know, there's, there's a few people that seem to be able to remember every hour of their life, to back to two or earlier. And they can demonstrate it at any time. I mean, uh, what did you have for breakfast yesterday? I don't. I don't remember. But <laughs> <laughs> this person knows what the color of the socks they were wearing on Wednesday of 1956 at nine o'clock in the morning, and what cereal they were eating, and what color their sweater was, and what the everything. The, a- absolute complete this is staggering you know others can do pi to you know 7000 22000 places you know like i can do 2 plus 2 is <laughs> 5 isn't it yeah um, check me on that um, so absolute recall of music so you know uh, some of the conductors have Absolute, every note of 70 or 80, 90 symphonies and can perform by memory um, this staggering amount of things. And then, of course, we do have people who spontaneously seem to have or report to have recall of a previous life. So here, actually, we get into one of the idipadas, And this is by... You can actually acquire memory supernormal memory and you can inquire and develop possibly detailed memory of previous lives now why especially in the West where it's not the it's not the common view of things most people never never occurred to them to try because you don't have a previous life you pop out of nothing and then if you're a Christian you go into eternity but you came out of nothing (laughs) and if you're a nihilist materialist, you came out of nothing and you go back to nothing. But if you're a Buddhist, surprise, surprise. By the way, Buddhists are not very interested in the, in the stories about the afterlife. You notice there's a lot of magazine articles and all these like so-and-so, you know, experienced the afterlife and saw the afterlife. And if the Buddhists... Generally, you're not interested in this because why? This is the afterlife; it's the one after the previous one. So, I can tell you all about it. You know, <laughs> what? Like, Christians are interested in the afterlife because they presume there is no previous life. Well, what a weird presumption! Where did they get this idea? Apparently, they had to. They did have a council about this, uh, Council of Nicaea, and they had to. They had to decide. Like, they had, they, already, they had heard about this prior lives and should they admit it into the doctrines that were being demanded. So Christianity was told to clean up their act by the emperor because nobody could decide what Christianity was. So they had to get together and say, no, I want a clear, I want to, I want to know which books go in and... Which stay out and what ideas stay in, or so you guys get together a group of you and just clean it up, and so they had to decide uh was the soul in existence before this or not like so uh they decided no, simple as that <laughs> and there were there were political reasons for this as well. they also had to vote. Do women have a soul? Passed by one or two votes. (laughs) Yes, you do have a soul. You can relax. From a Buddhist point of view, none of you have a soul. (laughs) At least we're equal opportunists. Uh, So, strangely enough, you find um, in the judaic you know the pre pre uh, what, what christianity came out of some of them have a doctrine of reincarnation pre- previous existences all of the great greek philosophers also socrates plato all had in fact a pythagoras had he said he recalled four previous lives and this is, you go to university and study Greek philosophy, it's virtually not, never mentioned. And they all, this is the whole motivation of their philosophy, was to get, guess what, to get out of the wheel of becoming. This is Socrates and Plato. And Aristotle went to study with Plato at 17, in order to, aspiring to get off the wheel of becoming. This is, you, you never, this is, you can, I can read out a, a statement by Plato about the deathless that you cannot distinguish from the Buddha's definition of Nibbana. This is what he's aspiring to, the deathless. Yeah. Anyway, the the and they had methods, the Greeks had methods of trying of learn of trying to recall it, because you know obviously most people don't. And so the Buddhists also had So how, why do some recall it? And so you can, there's a systematic structure for recollection of previous lives. You can even go one better and you can remember somebody else's lives. So read their mind enough. So the Buddha seemed to be able to see the previous lives of other people. So that's even like another level of the game. And, but I think, you know, I think that some people certainly have a good sense of their own personal history, just in this life, just in one life. They have a, a good, balanced and clear sense of and memory of the things they did, uh, moral, you know, usually your what sticks with you are moral events, right? Things that you were involved in that you were proud of or ashamed of or something like this is the kind of the strong content of that and that's kind of what more or less modern psychology and modern psychiatry really is, is like kind of trying to read into the history, the personal history of, the, of another person. Why are you having problems? You know, let's go back. I want to see into your past. I want to see, and so some people seem to be very intuitive about this. I think you've got, I think something happened to you as a kid, I think something happened. To you as a kid, and that's why you feel this way. So this is seeing into another person's past, but the Buddha takes it. So you know, a big revelation. Freud, he, he he has special techniques. He wants to get back to your your. He wants to uncover your personal history, which you can't access. So he, what does he do? He, hypnosis. He he tries to get. It's just something like a Buddhist technique. Is like we're trying to find. First, like special techniques in order to uncover memory and see where certain things are coming from so this is also the sense of this karma like karma events in the past that are that are having uh, results now so this is the there's two two words right karma which or karma which is in common vocabulary now, everybody, you know, karma. They, and there's vipaka, which is the resultant of karma. Most people use this. Oh, that's your karma, but actually, what they mean is that's your vipaka. That's the results of your karma. And your karma is something intentionally done, not your fate, but your some intentional action that was done in the past and is now having a resultant of fruit fruition. So, kind of like insight into that, this is happening because of that. So that those kind of things, certainly in uh, Asian society, it's just commonly accepted, and in the West, because basically, probably because of Christian influences and modern uh, physics and so forth. materialistic ideas, the idea of previous life and the next life are under great scrutiny. So this is, there's a lot of resistance but if you go to a culture that is a Buddhist culture or has a doctrine, there's other cultures that have the notion of uh, rebirth, reincarnation, so forth, it's commonly accepted and might be much more accessible because you don't have a kind of a barrier to it, so it might be you might be able to get to it more easily. It's kind of like going to a culture where women had a subjugated role. And if you bring up the idea that women are equal or can do the, all these things, they it never occurred to them because it's the whole culture doesn't allow that. But then you go to a culture that allows all these things and we have all kinds of We've been through like seven revolutions in the last 40 years of social revolutions about people, racial things, gender things, sexual things, everything, <laughs> thing thing. <laughs> and and it's, it's strange you can walk around almost hypnotized, well, literally hypnotized by the culture. And then somebody says, wait a second, do you not notice that? Did you not notice that those people of color can't come into this restaurant? And why is that? Well, because it's obvious. <laughs> no, it's not obvious. That must that's gotta go. So, and it's like coming out of a hypnotic state. Like, what? How did anybody think like that? Well, you see people who have got who have been in that, like believe that, and then they come out of it and they think. What was I think Like, how did that happen? How was I convinced of that? How did I not see that? Because there's no indication that you should inquire or examine this at all. So this is, this is uh, the Buddha is remarkable. He is going against the stream of, the, of uh, all kinds of strategies at the time as well, including the caste system. All kinds of strange ideas, rejecting rites and rituals and magical ideas and sacrifice of animals. There's even sacrifice of humans, you know, at that time. So, what, what are you doing? You know, don't you see these things are alive, intelligent, conscious beings like you are? You know, like, don't hurt them. <laughs> this is like an unthought of thing that he's seeing because he developed this supernormal focus concentration and, and intelligent inquiry seeing new things and then he's thinking how do i communicate th- this with others how what are the how do i tell them what they have to develop in order to see this so this is like we've come in modern times we've come up this first thing the kid has to learn to read and write you know they have to go to start and have got to start them at four or five because the before we get this information across, they have to be literate, you know. So there's all kind of like preliminary trainings and stuff that you have to assemble in order to get any of these uh, capacities. So I think uh, more or less the psychic ideas, that which is produced by you know, extraordinary capacities of the mind are more acceptable to people. Some some people would deny that it's possible, but others would we say, well, you know, the mind, it's amazing what the mind can do. And then there's other things that are really run against modern ideas about physics, you know. So some of these iddies, these powers are the capacity to, you know, move through the air, bodily move through the air, as they they speak of basically flying through the air, cross-legged, like a bird. Although birds don't fly cross-legged, but like a bird. But the monk is, or the person is cross-legged. Passing through solid objects, even like mountains, and walking on water, You that one might ring a bell, walking on water. So that, you know, 500 years before Christ, walking around on water. Um, so there's a number of sort of iddies special powers that are reported, which really would be very difficult to square with the idea that physics is consistent, <laughs> you know? So there's, there's various attitudes to that. There's w- one attitude is that these are experiences that one has that if you're in a highly concentrated state of mind, you experience the movement from one point to another as almost as like flying, that your, your body is as light as air and it is equivalent to being just to floating, you know, I we see this in poetry and, and, you know, somebody's in love and they go to visit their girlfriend and it's, they float, they, they walk, they, get, they fly on their wings of, of love, <laughs> whatever. Uh, people describe this also on drugs, uh, etc. So that's one attitude. Uh, it's a kind of a psychologizing these things. And that's certainly confirmable, I think well, well not everybody but I think some of you, even in this room have had you know just experiences of weightless body you know gravityless body there's there's just meant sometimes special things happen special ways of being happen and we generally describe it as subjective experience rather than objective but it It's impossible to distinguish. It felt real, as real as it gets. Now the opposite is probably more common. You can feel as heavy as lead. In deep depression, you can feel that you weigh a ton. It is impossible to get out of bed. And it's real. And the scale, you can stand on the scale, it won't say that you weigh 3,000 pounds, it'll say 127. But whatever the scale says is virtually irrelevant to the total encompassing reality of your being. It's you weigh 3,000 pounds. And the scale just doesn't get it. So we can see it in the negative things and sometimes in the positive things as well but they're saying that by the purification of the mind by cultivating these things again and again and of course you're taking you know, you're removed from all distractions and, and you're spending days and weeks and months and years at this in low sensory environments cultivating these things then these type of things i've no doubt that they're reporting they're not making it up and they're not lying, there's such wide reporting of this and conversation, especially of course for monks, you, can't, you cannot report such supernormal events falsely, otherwise you can be uh, disrobed for that. A false claim of supernormal attainments is a disrobing offense. So monks, are very very careful about that and then so these accounts it's not something that you just want to claim so I, I think that one way or another this stuff happens and we leave it to uh, people to explore and whether and certainly these idea of reading people's minds are knowing things at a distance and all this seem to me very credible and real and confirmable. And I think there, there are lots of accounts, and of course uh, past life uh, accounts as well, lots of, lots of cases of, that are where people get the, this person, and usually it's a child, says, I was such and such a person, I lived such and such a place, this is how I died, this is my name, this is the, I was married to such and such, I had kids and so forth, and then, then you go and find that family, the person, the case, how they died and everything. So this is, there's large numbers of cases collected uh, of this. You see this whole five volumes, six volumes by Ian Stevenson, University of Virginia. There's 2,400 cases that they have collected from around the world of this, especially with children. So there's lots of sort of evidence that this kind of thing is hard to to explain any other way. I mean, there's hard evidence. Uh, So um, the mental things, uh, I think a lot of people would be open to this objective physical thing. Others more would have more Hesitation with that, but if you allow it to be a full subjective experience, then uh, it certainly you see more people who claim such things. And if you allow it to be a, a, a subjective but real experience, then it's more easy to accept. So that's a little. On this my first talk on the itipadas. <laughs> I'll leave that for you tonight.